You're listening to the Deconstructing Success podcast. I am your host, Tima Alhaj. Have you ever wondered what happens behind closed doors when it comes to real success? I know I have, and this is exactly why this show was created. I have an insatiable desire when it comes to learning from the best in the world and an obsession with how successful people think, operate, and execute. I want to know what sets these people apart from the average person. Each week, my focus is to have intimate conversations with successful CEOs, founders, athletes, experts, and leaders that have created extraordinary levels of success in their own lives. My goal is to ask the right questions whilst deconstructing their success process, their mindset, their life philosophy, and how they continue to achieve success. I want this information to be actionable for my listeners so you can achieve the success you desire and create your dream life. If you are hungry to grow and evolve to your full potential, then continue listening and subscribe as I deconstruct success from some of the greatest minds and the most inspirational individuals in the world. This week on Deconstructing Success, I interview world-renowned specialist in human behavior, Dr. John Martini. Dr. John Martini is an international speaker, founder of the Martini Institute and author of over 40 books. He has studied over 30,000 books across many disciplines and with his wisdom, education, real-life obstacles and determination, this has led him to create and design programs to empower and activate leadership and the potential in all seven areas of our life. His teachings start at the core of the issue, addressing the human factor and ranges out to a multitude of proven powerful tools. In this episode, we discuss the importance of gratitude, living our values, what drives our decision-making process, how to reconnect with our intuition, depression, anxiety, and how to find one's purpose. You know, your background is so interesting and I would love for you to just give us a bit of a background in terms of your childhood and your upbringing. You know, what were you like as a child? (laughs) I was born in 1954. I had a leg and arm that had been turned in when I came out. By the time I was probably one, I was starting to walk. I couldn't do it. So I had to wear braces on my arm and leg as a child. I also, around age one and a half, I had to go to a speech pathologist because the pronunciation of sounds were not coming out properly. So I had to remember using buttons and strings in my mouth to get my mouth to properly work. When I was around four, I finally got out of the braces and I wanted to just run and be free because I'd been constrained. And I guess I've been on the run ever since. Then when I was uh, in elementary school, my first grade teacher invited my parents to the to the school and said, I'm afraid your son's not going to be able to read or write. He's not going to be able to communicate effectively. He's not going to be able to go very far or mount anything. And if I were you, I'd put him into sports because he likes running. Mm-hmm. And um, I was decent in, in baseball at the time. And so I went off in that direction. I made it through elementary school with the help of the smart kids by asking and befriending smart kids and asking what they, what they learned. And if they told me things, I could remember some things. 
And I made it through elementary school sort of that way until I was 12. And I, I passed by guessing and asking questions and getting friends to help me. And um, there was a very smart girl there that I had a crush on that I used to walk home and just to get information from her, <laughs> but also because she was cute. But um, then my parents moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas, and the smart kids were no longer there. Didn't have that. It was a low socioeconomic area. And then I'm not having somebody to help me, and I ended up not being able to read, and I ended up dropping out. Mm -hmm. So I left home when I was 13 and became a street kid. Mm. And, you know, some people think, oh, that's a terrible thing, but it was an adventure. I'm, I got to do amazing things, but I was a street kid and pretty well was a wandering kind of street kid up until I was 18. At 14, I hitchhiked to California and I lived in California at the beach and then down into Mexico because I just wanted to surf by then. I was into surfing. Texas wasn't the surf capital. At 15, I ended up making it to Hawaii, and I lived under a bridge, and then in a park bench, and then a bathroom, and then an abandoned car, and finally a tent. And so I was a long-haired hippie surfer guy riding waves on the north shore of Oahu. And then I, in 17, I nearly died, and I met, or shortly after that, well, a lady found me in my tent, almost dead, and... She helped me by helping me recover, led me to a health food store, which led me to a little talk at a yoga class to try to gain control over my physiology. And I met a teacher named Paul Bragg one night. And this one man in one hour with one message really spoke to me. And after hearing him speak, I, I, I believe that maybe I could overcome my learning problems and someday become intelligent. And in a meditation that night with him, I saw a vision of me overcoming my learning problems and learn how to be a teacher. And I wanted to travel the world and teach and be intelligent someday or learn how to read. So I guess that void was there that whole time and that surfaced that night. And that one night changed my life. That was 47 years ago next month. And ever since then, I have been on an on a absolute quest to try to learn as much as I can and try to share and teach as much as I can, whatever I found and learned. And that led me to eventually back to California, flew back there, then hitchhiked back to Texas, took a GED, guessed and passed, took a, co a college entrance test, guessed and passed, <laughs> failed my first college classes. I got a 27 on the first test and I needed a 72 to pass. I almost gave up on the, on the fantasy of being a teacher and traveling. And I came home crying because I failed. And my mom caught me there crying and she said, what happened, son? I said, mom, I, want to, I, I don't know how I'm going to pass the school. I failed. I don't know if I'll be able to read and write, communicate, mount thing or go very far in life. I just don't know if this is maybe a fantasy of mine. But And then finally she said, son, whether you become a great teacher, healer, and philosopher and travel the world like a dream, or whether you go back to riding big waves on the north shore of Oahu, or whether you return to the streets as a panhandling bum, I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what. When she said that, I needed to hear that. And my hand went into a fist and I looked up and I saw a vision that I saw the night I met Paul Bragg, that I was gonna speak in front of a million people. And it was a very vivid vision. I have it painted in my office in Houston right now and by Andrew Tischler. And I had a, a determination that day that I'm gonna master this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm gonna master this thing called teaching and philosophy and healing. 
And I'm going to do whatever it takes, travel whatever distance and pay whatever price to give my service of love. So I got up and I hugged my, my mom and I said to myself, I'm not, not going to let anything stop me on this mission now. I'm, no one's going to stop me, not even myself. I'm not going to let anybody in the face of the earth stop me. And I got up and I went in my room and I locked myself in my room with a dictionary and I started reading a dictionary and memorizing 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass school. And with the help of my mom, she used to test me on 30 words to make sure my vocabulary grew. And I started to excel. And I started to uh, read, you know, everything and anything. About months later, I, I asked my mom, she said, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, well, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth, the greatest writings humanity's ever created from the greatest minds who ever lived. She said, are you sure you don't want a t-shirt? <laughs> I said, no, mom, I want the greatest writings on earth. So she ended up contacting her brother, who's a professor at MIT, and he sent two giant big crates of books down to my, my parents' house. And I opened them up with a crowbar and filled my room with all these books. And I just sat for literally 18 to 20 hours a day, just reading and reading and reading and reading, and learning and using a dictionary and any word I didn't know and just growing my vocabulary and just trying to learn everything I could because I wanted to share, you know, whatever the greatest ideas that I could get. Mm-hmm. And that led me to eventually having students. I started having students at school. They, they kept growing in numbers. By the time I went to the University of Houston, which is my second tier schooling of college, I started having 100 to 150 students a day under the trees, listening and asking questions, sometimes up to 400. Then I went on to professional school and I taught every single night. And then it just grew from when I graduated. I just started teaching locally and in city and state and nation. And I just kept growing around the world. And I've been to 100 and by the end of the year, be 154 countries now. It's amazing. And I've, I've been blessed to, to do a lot of traveling and mm. do a lot of teaching. So when, when you, it was Paul Bragg, is that correct? What did he say? Is there, was there like a moment where something just really, really hit you and something just, I guess, maybe woke you up and realised that, that your self-belief is really, really important to be able to take you to that next step? So what did he say or what did he do? Well, he said, we have a body, we have a mind, and we have a soul. The body must be guided by the mind, and the, the mind must be directed by the soul if you want to master your life and maximize your potential. No one ever spoke to me like that. Mm-hmm. And he said that we, what we think about ourselves, what we see for ourselves, what we say to ourselves, and what we feel about ourselves determines our outcome. And that you have to take command of those things and not let the world around you dictate that, but what your heart and soul calls you to do, you have to fill that up. So he's the one that gave me internal dialogues and internal statements to say. The first thing he said to me when I told him I didn't know how to read is he said, just say to yourself every single day that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom and never miss a day for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And if you say that every single day, sooner or later the cells of your body will tingle with it and so will the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know what that meant at the time, mm-hmm. but I never stopped saying it even to this day, every single morning I say it and throughout the day. But I later learned that a genius is one who listens to the inner voice and follows the inner vision of their soul and obeys. The inner calling, you might say. And as I said on The Secret, when the voice and the vision on the inside is louder than all opinions on the outside, you begin to master your life. So he catalyzed uh, a new direction for me. And I, at first, you know, I had to learn how to read and learn how to grow my vocabulary and then learn how to integrate information. But luckily, students started asking me questions, and that gave me, you know, a motive to just keep going. 
So I learned that the, the more I teach, the more I learn, and I just kept doing that. So I did it every day. So when you uh, when you started off having your own students, you were you were still a student at the time, is that correct? So this yeah. was in high school. No, I went in high school. I never finished high school. Yeah, okay. So I went on. I took a GED test. Yes. When I was eighteen, mm-hmm. which is equivalent of a high school. Okay. I never finished high school. Okay. But what I did is I took that test and then I took a college exam, mm-hmm. and I guessed on those. Just purely closed my eyes and said, I'm a genius and I have a wisdom, and circled these little dots, these little pencil dots, and just guessed and passed. But then when I started college, I failed. I couldn't do that. It didn't work. Yeah. And that's when I had to go and learn how to read. And thank God for my mother, because she she was the one that was there to help. And I, I literally started memorizing a dictionary. I wanted to make sure I knew that dictionary and knew the encyclopedia. I read eight complete sets of encyclopedias, all the volumes of each set eight complete different sets just so I could grow my vocabulary so I could catch up with all the other students and eventually excel. What was your process like when you were trying to read, you know, the encyclopedia, knowing how hard it was for you to learn? I had a dictionary right there. Yeah. And any word in any sentence in the encyclopedia that I didn't know, I pulled a dictionary out Mm -hmm. and I wrote it in a sentence and wrote it out. It was a methodical, slow, steady process. Mm -hmm. So I had papers and papers and papers of pages there was no computer in those days, just pages yes. <laughs> of, of letters and things. And I would review those and meditate at night. I didn't sleep but about four hours. So I just meditated at night and um, just tried to memorize as many words as I could, grow my vocabulary. And, I, and after a while, I could read the encyclopedia and most of the words were starting to make sense. So it was really quite inspiring. And when those words started to make sense, was, was that giving you a lot more awareness in terms of your own uh, power of your own self-belief within yourself? Well, the moment my first student was a 375-pound Afro-American woman that wanted me to teach her yoga because I was doing yoga at the time. Started doing yoga when I was 17. And then my second student was a a gentleman from Tehran, a Persian, who wanted me to teach him uh, meditation. And those two things I was getting pretty good at. And um, then my third student was a gentleman that asked me to teach him algebra, because I was learning algebra, and he <laughs> saw that I was now starting to do well, and he asked me to tutor him. And it meant so much to me to be able to have somebody ask me to help them. Mm-hmm. That was like the most inspiring thing I could get, to have somebody ask me that like I had something to offer. Mm-hmm. And that was an amazing breakthrough for me. And I guess I felt in love with that, you know, trying to help other people by me learning it, because it pushed me to learn more. And when I knew that I had the responsibility of helping other people, it really accelerated my want to learn. What do you think they saw in you at the time? Because obviously you're still quite young and you were still learning yourself. What was it that they saw in you? That determination. I didn't care about the stuff that most students were interested in. I didn't care about partying or socializing or... I just read. I was just reading. They saw me just studious. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to read and read. I lived in the library and and, uh, they would come in the library or I, I would sit and read out under the out in the sun or under a tree. Mm-hmm. And they just noticed me. They thought I was a little odd. I had long hair and that yes. was unseen at the time. It wasn't <laughs> really popular then. And um, so they just thought I was an interesting looking character, mm-hmm. an odd, oddball, I think. But I really sincerely wanted to study and learn. And I think that that's what made them, you know, curious. And it grew. And by the time I was at the University of Houston, you know, we'd have, sometimes it's up to 400 people gathering and asking questions under the trees. And it was like a dream come true for me. 
That's really powerful because if you look at the time, I mean, there was no social media, there was no instant, you know, communication tool really other than just people just either learning about you or hearing about you and gravitating towards you. That's really quite powerful. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to make it look like I, there was some sort of magnet because where I, where I did this little yoga, I put a, like a mat towel kind of thing out on the, under the trees, which is where a lot of people walk on the way to classes in school and college. Yeah just happened to be where, I mean, it wasn't right in the middle of the path, but it was where you could see it from a path. And so people were curious, who's this yogi over here? <laughs> and uh, I guess I looked different and acted different than some of the other students and people were curious. And it just kind of grew. And people, once you get a group of people listening in, the rest of them go, what's going on over there? Yeah. And it just kind of grew and it became a ritual daily. So. And with your determination... What is it about this determination that just kept pushing you through on a daily basis? Because that would have been a very, very challenging time for you to really just um, put yourself in that position to teach yourself so many things. So what was it about this determination that just kept pushing you? I found what I felt was my mission. I just felt like this was the purpose I was to do. Mm -hmm. And I I loved learning. Because I had such a challenge when I was young with it, and I never thought I would do it. In, in first grade, my teacher had to put me with a dunce cap on. I had to face the window with another guy named Daryl Dalrymple. Yeah. And we um, were considered the dumb ones, the stupid ones, the ignorant ones. And, and I, that wasn't inspiring. But I didn't have an alternative because I really did read backwards and I wrote backwards because my hand was turned in. So I wrote backwards like this. And I was considered, you know, kind of stupid. So I think that void later became the, the drive, the value, to want to catch up and learn. And, and then when somebody actually acknowledged that, hey, you're, you are intelligent, that was like very deeply meaningful. So, but I don't think I do it only now because of that. I, I do it because I just love learning. I mean, I'm studying, today I'm studying economics, I'm studying cancer research, and I'm studying philosophy, and I'm studying theology by Maimonides, as a mm-hmm. Jewish scholar. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reading everything I can get my hands on and, Anything that, they, that assists people in the evolution of human consciousness and maximizing human awareness potential and the overall evolution of human beings on the planet and beyond, I'm interested in. So I study every ology and discipline I can to, for that purpose. And you touched on purpose a little bit earlier. And this is one of the questions that I get a lot is people really find it really difficult to find what their purpose is or what their existence is all for in this world. Can you share a process or some guidance for those that are feeling a little bit disconnected and really unsure why they're here? How can one find their purpose? Well, every individual, regardless of age or gender or culture, lives moment by moment by a set of priorities, a set of values of their life, things that are most to least important. And whatever's highest on that value list, they're spontaneously inspired to do. So that's the path of excellence. And whatever's lower on the value list, they need external motivation, extrinsic motivation to get them to do it. Reward if they do it, punishment if they don't. But that highest value, which the ancients call the telos, the chief aim, the primary objective, is the highest priority, most important thing that they can focus on. And that is the one that is the purpose, the one that is the mission that they're really committed to. And they spontaneously do it. They don't, again, need any form of motivation to do it. Mine is teaching, but... Everybody has something different. And if you look carefully at what your life demonstrates, your life reveals it. You fill your space with it. You spend your time on it. 
You energize yourself when you didn't do it. You feel whatever your money goes to it. Where you're most ordered and organized revolves around it. What you're most disciplined is that. What you think about, visualize, and affirm to yourself about how you want your life and that shows evidence coming true revolves around it. What you converse with other people about revolve around it. What you're most inspired by is governed by it. What you can't wait to get up and study and learn and the goals that are actually coming true that you're persistent on are the ones that are in that direction. Your life demonstrates that value. And just looking objectively at what your life is gives you an indication of what that mission is. And I have not had a problem helping people find it. I mean, I do it every weekend in my Breakthrough Experience program. But people compare themselves to others, subordinate and live in the shadows of other people, and cloud the clarity of their own calling by trying to be somebody they're not. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes them think they don't know what it is. But their life demonstrates it. Why do, why do people compare their life to others? Well, I think that if we go back thousands of years, human beings did not do well on their own nomadically. And so they end up finding other individuals to join and fit in, kind of like a herd instinct, to prevent themselves from being destroyed by nature, you might say. So there was a yearning to want to be part of the crowd instead of stand out. To be excommunicated from the group and pushed away from the group, you usually died. So as a result of it, people fit in and they wanted to and not stand out. And so the individuals that stand out are the square plagues in a round hole. They're the misfits, the ones that actually make a difference in the world. But the majority of people subordinate to others, fit in, mimic others, chameleon effect. Uh, their mirror neurons try to duplicate, learn from other people, and they just try to fit in. And the majority of people are not the great leaders. They're the followers. So if you fit in, you're automatically diluting your potential. But if you stand out, you, you have the potential, if it's congruent, to go out and do something with great potential. So the reason why we've, we've, our instinct is to fit in and our impulse is to be liked by that group, but the real calling and inspiration is to walk an unborrowed visionary's path and to originate something uh, you know, that's really you. And um, most people don't give themselves permission to do that. And, but if they pursue things that are as highest on their values, they embrace both challenge and support equally in the pursuit of it. And it's when you're pursuing challenges that are inspiring to you that innovation, creativity, and genius is born. Mm -hmm. And that's the people that stand out and make the mark in the, in the world. And when one really knows what their values are and, and then determine what their purpose is, do you feel that they have to monetize that and create a life income from that? Or do you think it can be something that they can just do separate to what they do for work? They can do it either way. But my experience is that if you're not doing what you love on a daily basis and getting remunerated for it, you're probably having to have a schizophrenic life where you have a Monday morning blues, a Wednesday hump days, a thank God it's Friday, a week friggin' <laughs> in, and to escape to then spend your money on things that yeah. make you feel better because you're not fulfilled. Mm -hmm. But if you actually go out and do something you're really inspired to do and you find a way of serving other people where you get compensated for it and you get paid to do it, you then have the income to delegate all lower party things so you can live an inspired life. I teach people in the Breakthrough Experience, if you want to live an inspired life, identify what it is that you love doing, find out what it is that meets massive market need, find out where they overlap, find your niche and pursue it. And when they do, they go do amazing things. And for one, for someone to really know what they really love and what their passion is, they need to be connected to their intuition as well and really sort of feel, really understand what that is. And, and sometimes people don't know how to read their intuition because they've been ignoring it for so many years. So how can one reconnect with that so that they're aware and be able to really 
find what their purpose is? Well, we have a, our amygdala, which is a subcortical brain structure that is involved in the desire. It's called the desire center by some. And it desires to seek impulsively things that support its values and instinctively avoid things that challenge its values. So it's seeking prey and avoiding predator. So it's an animal impulse instinct center. And um, whenever we are infatuated with something, it occupies space and time in our mind. And whenever we resent or avoid something, it occupies space, time in our mind and runs us. So we're extrinsically run by things we seek and avoid as a protective mechanism. But our intuition is attempting to not be impulsive towards the pleasure and instinctual away from pain. It's trying to show us the downside of the infatuation and the upside of the resentment to neutralize that, to allow us to embrace both the prey and the predator in the pursuit of a purpose. Because if we got prey, we'd be gluttonous and fat. If we had without predator, if we had predator without prey, we'd become starved and thin. But if we put the two together, prey and predator, we keep ourselves fit. Mm-hmm. So maximum fitness and creativity and ingeniousness comes at the border of those two. So our intuition is attempting to show us the downsides of the things we infatuate with and the upsides of the things we resent and bring us into objectivity where we're balanced and we see things uh, more evenly, even-minded and objective or equanimity are the same. And in that area, that is where our highest value is and that's where our purpose is. So our purpose is guided intuitively into that center point where meaning occurs, the mean between the polarities allow us to maximize our potential because we innovate, create original ideas when we're pursuing challenges that inspire us. But when we're avoiding a challenge and looking for ease, we're pursuing that which is unavailable and trying to avoid that which is unavoidable, which is a source of the passion and suffering. So we, our, our job is to give rise to something original as an individual with unique sets of values pursuing what truly means something to us, which is the highest value. And with values, uh, I know that sometimes when I sit down with people and talk about values, not everybody really believes in the power of values. Can you share a little bit about, I guess, your perception, your understanding of values and why they're so important? Well, as I said, each individual lives moment by moment by a set of values that is evolving. And whenever they're living by highest values, they grow in self-worth and they expand themselves. Whenever they attempt to live by lower values, when they inject the values of others, they shrink. They end up at a shrink, shrinking. So we're here to expand. We're here to shine, not to shrink. And we're here to go out and do something original. And so setting goals that are aligned and congruent with our highest values makes enormous differences. If we fill our day with high-priority actions that inspire us, our life doesn't fill up with low-priority distractions that don't. And if we pursue challenges that inspire us, we create youth stress and wellness promotion if we try to avoid challenges that dispire us, we create illness mm-hmm. and distress. Mm-hmm. So it's the key is to fill our day with the highest priority actions that inspire us the most and go after the challenges that make a difference in the world. You know, uh, there's a new video out on Bill Gates and how he researches and he learns and he tries to find solutions to problems in society. That's a classical example of a, of a more self-actualized individual. And I find that that's what I find in, in great minds, great leaders, great to anybody, uh, whether it be celebrities in, in any field or, or scholars. The ones that are pursuing the challenges that inspire them, these are the keys to, to greatness. Other than learning, what else inspires you? <laughs> learning. Learning. <laughs> <laughs> I love teaching, researching, writing, and traveling. Those are the four things. Everything else I delegate. Everything I else you delegate. I don't do anything else. Yeah. I don't cook. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I haven't driven a car in 30 years. 
once I found out my four elements that I do most, which mm-hmm. is researching, writing, traveling, and teaching, I delegate everything else. So I don't do anything but research. I do interviews, which is teaching. Mm-hmm. I write uh, articles for 1,400 magazines and newspapers around the world. I'm constantly researching, writing, traveling, and teaching. Because that's what I—that's my core competence. That's what I love doing. That's why I could do it all day long. I never have to... I don't need to escape that. I don't need a vacation from that. That's a vacation for me. I love that. And I'd love to talk a little bit about anxiety and depression and where you think that's heading in terms of just the time that we live in, you know, especially with social media and all of the things that we, uh, you know, that we're exposed to. Where do you see anxiety and depression heading? Well, depression I've defined as a comparison of your current reality to a fantasy, unrealistic expectation, a delusion that you're addicted to. And I offend people on doing that because right now we got this pharmaceutical model. We have a biochemical imbalance, and that's mm-hmm. the cause of this. And I get, a, you know, I offend a lot of neuropsychiatrists and stuff like that because they they don't know any different than their, their chemistry game. But I've worked with tens of thousands of people that had depression, and I've yet to find somebody that I can't transform. So I, I help them. I, I say, well, what are you depressed? I had the one the other day in the in my program in Brisbane, and there's a lady that said. I'm depressed, I've been suicidal. Her husband was there, very concerned about it. And I said, okay, so what are you depressed about? She goes, I don't know. I said, you can't have a feeling without content in the mind. So don't lie to yourself. What are you depressed about? Well, because I thought by now I would be at a farther level in this particular area of my business by now. I said, okay, what else? And I thought by now that my kids would be still you know, out of the house and more independent. And I thought, and I, and I made her look at all the things she was expecting that wasn't happening. And I showed her that she didn't have strategies to achieve those things. It wasn't really highest on her values. So she was setting unrealistic expectations on people to live in her values or her to live in some other values other than what she was really having. Mm. And I explained to her that her delusions. And then we went through and, and broke the delusions and then asked her what would be the benefit of what's happening and what was the drawback if it had been the way she fantasized about it. And we cracked him, and all of a sudden she burst into tears, and she goes, wow, what's happening is actually on track. I said, yeah, your life's on track, according to what you truly value, but you haven't known what they were, and you're having unrealistic expectations on yourself and other people and setting yourself up for depression. And she goes, right now I'm, I'm not feeling depressed. I said, no, because we just cracked some of the fantasies and set some realistic expectations and help you appreciate what she's doing. And she just goes, see, so there's actually things I might be able to do on my own. I said, of course you can. I said, you've been, been told and sold a pharmaceutical model that there's a de- depression to biochemical imbalance. And that's a fact. There is bi- biochemical imbalances. But that's not the cause. That's just an effect of perceptions that are imbalanced and accumulating stored in your so-called subconscious mind and stored in the electronics of the brain. And she changed her perception at that day. And her husband was sitting there with tear in his eye. And he goes, mm. so you think there's hope for my wife? I said, I'm absolutely certain. And I gave her one of my facilitators to work with her. I'm absolutely certain. And if they sat and worked with her for a days, if you know, worked on a few of these mm-hmm. things, she'd be fine. That's I see so this powerful. every week. Yeah. So that's depression. Anxiety is an event in your life that you thought was traumatic because you never looked at the upsides of it. Mm. And um, it didn't match the fantasy of what you were expecting at the time. And um, you thought there was more pain and pleasure. And it's never what happens to you. It's how you perceive it. And you have choice on that perception. And then what's happening is secondary and tertiary and quaternary associations you're making along the journey through the stream of consciousness through time is now making those being reminded. And now you've got a whole bunch of stimulus that's reminding of the original event. And each time we go back to that event and go through frame by frame, 
and help you see the other side of the equation. You can dissolve these things. At Keio University in Japan, we, we worked with grief, uh, anxiety, and depression, and um, amazing results there. And it's just simply asking the right questions because the quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you ask. And you could get me going here and I could start, start uh, revving up here. No, I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about it because uh, it's such a, it, it's a topic that we talk about, but not enough, I don't think, in terms of insightful perception, in terms of the way you've just explained it. The majority it. of people want a quick pill for every ill. They want a quick fix. They want immediate gratification. They don't want to do what it takes to empower their lives and master their perceptions and govern their behaviors. And so they just re retort to an option and thank God there is an option for people that aren't willing to do it or don't have the skills or knowledge to do it. There is a value in, in the having that option, uh, the pharmaceutical option, but that is not the first place to go. You know, if you go to a surgeon, and they're, they're gonna take out an organ. You go to a medical doctor, they're gonna give you a, a drug of some form. Mm. You go to a chiropractor, you're gonna get an adjustment. You go to a nutritionist, you're gonna get vitamins and nutrition. So you need to select who you're going through and start with the most conservative and you work your way out, not go to something that has psychiatric psychosis responses from the drug. And so if someone is feeling depressed and they are listening to everything you're saying, but they're probably thinking, but you still don't understand my life, you don't understand what's happened to me. I know, I get it every week. You would, absolutely. So what are the things that you say to these people when they do respond that Stop way? Stop your story, quit running your racket, let's follow the methodical process and let's go and dissolve it. And they go, well, what do we do? Okay, let's take them one by one because you've got stacked up associations and delusions that you're running your life by. Let's take one at a time. What are you depressed about? What are you comparing your current reality to about how it's supposed to be? And I assure you that when I ask that question, they go, you can't have depression without a, without a content. So what are you depressed about? I'm depressed because my husband had an affair. Okay, good. He's not committed to you. You're living in a delusion he was. You're living in an ideology that he's supposed to be. But the reality is that anything you're not willing to do with your mate, you're going to be willing to delegate. So he had an affair. He was obviously not being fulfilled in some of the dynamics between you. So how did it serve you? How, what, what do, how did you grow from it? And what were you doing that was leading to that? Because you're not a victim of this. You're participating in it in a relationship with him. And what is he working through? And if he's not there, I got to work with her. If she, he's there, I get to work with him and her. And I go in there and find out how it serves. Did it make you stop and reflect and not even take for granted? Did it make you not project your values onto him? Did it make you not communicate in a way that's challenging his values? Did it make you understand what's really priority to him? Mm -hmm. Do you understand that you live in an ideology about how you're supposed to be or how he's supposed to be that he's not matching? What is the role here? And I help him become aware of it and then what they can do about it. And um, when they do, they're actually grateful and they learn how to communicate in each other's values to increase the probability of developing a relationship again. So just because they have a fling doesn't mean anything. It, it means that that individual's values aren't being met. Mm -hmm. And a customer, when they go to a different store because you're not providing what they need, they're not having a, an affair. They're simply trying to fulfill their, their values. But you don't think of it that way as a customer in a store, but it's the same thing. We're all customers. When we have a relationship with somebody, the, the relationship we're in, that's a customer. And if we don't meet their needs and we don't go out of our way to find out what their needs are as it's evolving, and we don't care enough about them to do that, they're going to go find somebody else. So that correlation with values and then and then the depression as well, that's a, that's a very interesting perspective there. I've actually never heard of it being described that way. So it actually makes absolute Well, every sense. human being wants to fulfill what's most meaningful to them. That's right. And if they don't know how, they don't have a strategy, and they have a fantasy that it's going to happen without the strategy, mm. 
they're probably going to beat themselves up or beat somebody up about it. They're going to blame something or blame mm -hmm. themselves. Epictetus, the philosopher, a Greek philosopher, said the, the individual that starts out on the journey of personal development or human development starts out blaming others. Then they eventually blame themselves. And then they realize there's nothing to blame. <laughs> it's just fine. feedback from the universe to guide them yeah. to do what's wise and what's priority and be authentic. And why does our mind resort to all these stories that we tell ourselves? Why does it always go back to a story? Well, sometimes we run a story because we, we run our racket because we want to blame and we want to dissociate from our own causal dynamics. We, we, we start out blaming, as I said, and think our the source outside. The lowest level of the brain is extrinsically driven. So reward and punishment is the two prey and predator, reward and punishment. That's like the lowest morals and lowest theological constructs, that there's a, a devil out there and there's a savior out there kind of thing. And then the next level is where you finally realize, hey, I'm accountable for my reality. What I'm perceiving both sides is, is my reality. Eventually you realize that nothing's missing you. You're both the hero and the, de the, the villain, the, the saint and the sinner. You're, you're the virtue and the vice. You're all of it. Nothing's missing at the level then. And that's when you finally more actualize your life and realize that, you know, I'm all those things. I don't have to judge anybody else because there's nothing out there that's not me. And why are people, some people, just really resistant to doing the hard work and really being accountable for their own actions? Our animal nature, our amygdala, wants immediate gratification. It has a short time horizon and space horizon. It, it wants immediate gratification. It wants pleasure without pain. It's hedonistic. It's utilitarian. It's a pleasure-seeking organ and not a meaningful-seeking organ. And um, the will to pleasure, as Freud said, or the will to power, which is Nietzsche, or the will to meaning, which is Frankel, um, they're stages of psychological development. And so majority of people aren't uh, highly developed in the sense of their, their mastery of life yet. Mm. And they're basically still in the herd and they're still worried about what uh, people think about them. And, you know, as Kohlberg says, we go from avoiding pain, seeking pleasure, to then subordinating to mamas, fathers, preachers, teachers, to eventually subordinating to social structures, conventions, traditions, and mores, and eventually transcendent, we finally realize our self-actualized path. And very few people are willing to do that. That's the, the one percenters. Not because any one person has to be, you know, gifted. It's just that most people don't take the time to learn the strategies on how to master their life. Mm -hmm. That's what I've been dedicating my life for 47 years to. You have this concept called the deserve limit, and I see a correlation with imposter syndrome as well when you talk about this um, concept, which I find really fascinating. And imposter syndrome is something that a lot of people uh, experience, and definitely people come to me because I, do, I create a lot of content online, and there are a lot of people that ask me, like, how do you overcome imposter syndrome? And I'd love to touch on that. And if you can give my audience some tips or some things that they can apply in their life to really overcome imposter syndrome. Yeah, don't waste your time on trying to be somebody you're not. <laughs> it's as simple as that. If you don't know what your highest values are, your highest one particularly, and you don't prioritize your life to live according to the top one, you're going to end up with a imposter syndrome because you're going to end up trying to live in other people's values. Mm -hmm. And envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. Mm -hmm. You'll automatically try to be setting goals that aren't yours, trying to live in a way that fits into other people that isn't you, and you'll lose yourself. The old proverb, I'd rather have the whole world against me than my own soul. I'd rather be the, the soul that guides me. Yeah. So prioritizing your life according to what you truly value is the path out of that. Mm -hmm. And what people used to call limited beliefs are not really limiting beliefs. They're beliefs that are incongruent with what your highest value is. Mm -hmm. It's you trying to live by somebody else's values and wondering why it's not working. 
When you set a goal that's truly congruent with what you value most, you achieve it. Mm-hmm. You walk your talk. Mm-hmm. You don't limp your life and you achieve it and your confidence goes up and your belief in yourself goes up. The second you set a goal that's somebody else's, that's not really yours, you are not able to stay disciplined or reliable and focused on it. And you end up thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not getting anywhere. And you limp your life and you start doubting yourself. And then you say you want to do something that's not really going to happen because it's not you. And that's where the imposter syndrome comes. And it's really the imposter syndrome is not a bad thing. It's a feedback to let you know that you're pursuing something that's not you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that's something that I wanted to also touch on with you as well. You know, you believe that negative thoughts are not, that you shouldn't be like getting rid of those negative thoughts. There's no human being without negative thoughts. Yep. It's a fantasy. Mm-hmm. I spent two years researching that just specifically on whether or not a person could stay positive and it's impossible. Yes. It's a waste of time <laughs> to even think that. People that live in a fantasy that they're going to be positive or are positive are just deluding themselves. You're yeah. going to have both positive and negatives. Anytime you set a goal, and anytime you expect another individual to be one-sided, mm-hmm. not both-sided. So if I went to you and I said to you, you're always nice, you're never mean, you're always kind, you're never cruel, you're always giving, you're never taking, you're always generous, never stingy, always considered, never considered, inconsiderate, always peaceful, never wrathful, and always positive, never negative, your bullshit meter would go off and go, mm, no. And you'd be thinking intuitively of those moments when <clears throat> you were critical and negative and doubtful and all that stuff. And I said, and I went to you and I said, well, you're always negative, you're never positive, you're always critically never praising, you're always, uh, you know, wrathful, never peaceful, always stingy, never generous. And the other side, you'd go, no, that's not true. You'd be intuitively thinking of the times when you were up and generous. But if I said to you, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're positive, sometimes you're negative, sometimes you're giving, sometimes you're taking, you immediately go, yep. You intuitively know that you're both. Mm. So to pursue a one-sided thing is ridiculous. And to expect some human being, another individual, or yourself to be one-sided is futile. You're not going to get it. So what do people do with these negative thoughts then? The negative thoughts are letting you know that you're pursuing a fantasy of one-sidedness or mm-hmm. a fantasy of trying to live in, in, outside your own values or other, expecting others to live outside their values. And we create what I call anger and aggression, blame and feelings of betrayal, criticism and challenge, despair and depression, desire to exit and escape, feelings of futility and frustration, grouchiness and grief and hatred and hurt. The ABCDFGHs of negativity are feedbacks to let you know that you're projecting an unrealistic expectation on others, yourself, the world in general, or on some mechanical object. And I've never seen those depressions without one or more of those unrealistic expectations. What sort of negative thoughts come to you? What, what sort well, of anytime you I expect there? somebody to live in my values, I'm going to have it. Yes. Anytime I expect myself to try to do something that's in somebody else's values, I'm, I'm going to have it. Anytime I have a one-sided outcome, I want to have positive without negative or pleasure without pain or peace without war or a relationship that's happy without sad. Mm-hmm. These are delusions. Yeah. And I've had many of them over the years. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, it's a gradual feedback to let you know that you're pursuing a, a delusion. You might as well wake up and embrace the magnificence of how life really is is far greater than the fantasies we keep imposing on it. I feel that everything that you're really talking about really just goes back to values. And it's such a powerful, powerful way to look at things. It really is. It, it gives people, I feel it's very hopeful and it gives people a strategy to be able to work through and manage through these things. Well, there's, there's absolutely nothing that you can go through. There's nothing your mortal body can experience that your mortal soul can't love, I tell people. Mm. And there's nothing you can't navigate through in your life and come out with something that has meaning and purpose in it. Mm-hmm. So it's all about how you ask the right questions. I train people on how to ask those questions so they can appreciate their life again. Because some people are comparing themselves to others and thinking, oh, I should be like the Kardashians with a perfect uh, this or a perfect that or whatever. And they live in delusions instead of honoring who they are. 
the magnificence of who they are is far greater than the fantasies they keep making out of themselves. And how can one honour who they are uh, when they are really not in that mental space and they're not ready to do that? How can one do that? Uh, wake up and, and, and smack yourself across the face a bit and say, quit running your story and running your little victim story. If you're a victim yeah. of history, you're never going to be a master of destiny. Stop. Start asking quality questions. Start doing high-priority actions. Start to get clear about what your real life is really demonstrating as valuable to you. There's, you, you can run stories all your life, but you're not going to get anywhere with stories about how you've been a victim. You're going to get mm -hmm. somewhere by making actions that make you empowered. What are some of these questions that you're talking about that people can ask themselves? Uh, well, one is, what is the highest priority action I could be doing today that give me the greatest, greatest meaning, fulfillment, and greater do the greatest service on the planet? You do that, your life changes. Uh, ask yourself, what is that I'd absolutely love to do in life? How do I get handsomely, beautifully paid to do it? What are the highest priority actions I can move and take actions today that move me one step closer to it? What obstacles might I run into and how do I solve them in advance with pre-thought? What worked and what didn't work today? How do I do it more effectively and efficiently tomorrow? How did whatever I experience, whether supportive or challenging, help me? If you ask those questions, those are very valuable questions. And what are the truly highest priority actions I can do on a daily basis to help me fulfill my, my mission? And what is the service that I can provide that's unique that I would absolutely can't wait to get up in the morning and do in the morning to, to be of service to people? The, the quality of your life is based on different questions. You ask those questions, your life changes. How, do you ever have those days where you wake up and you just don't feel as motivated or as inspired? No, I don't. I, I'm pretty inspired when I get up. Now, there's times when I got to working until two in the morning and I have to catch a flight if I have to leave at four so I got an hour of sleep and I'm mm. not popping out of bed with the thing. I'm, I'm waking up and washing my eyes out because yeah. I've got a very intense schedule. But no, I'm inspired by what I do and I, I usually go to bed with my gratitudes. I think I showed those to you. Yes, you do. I have a list of everything that I do on a daily basis that are gratitudes, 5,000 pages of them. And um, I do that every night like a ritual. You saw mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So I wake up with that in my mind and I have no problem getting up and getting up and doing what I love doing, because I've structured my life where I'm not having to do anything but what I love doing. And most people don't know they can do that. They don't realize that they, are in, they have the power to be in command and create a different life. And you touched on gratitude. So how important is it to have gratitude in your life? Well, it's a spontaneous thing in your life when you're living by what's highest on values. You just mm -hmm. spontaneously do it. You don't have to go, oh, I need to be grateful. It just happens. Mm -hmm. You're grateful for the opportunities that keep emerging when you're pursuing what's really truly you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a confirmation that you're authentically moving in the direction of what it is you love most. Mm -hmm. So it's just a confirmation, and it's just a spontaneous thing. Because, you know, you, the people, places, things, ideas, and events in your life keep emerging spontaneously when you're congruent. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's something you have to go, oh, I need to be grateful now. Yeah. I don't think like that. I just, <laughs> I just list every single night of the things yeah. that I got to do, and, mm -hmm. and I've got amazing things to be grateful for every day. And when you're listing them, are they, you know, in sentence form, in keywords? Or yeah, well, do you really there's describe? sentences. Um, sometimes there's there's pictures people send me. Sometimes, you know, I'll get a, a student of mine that's gone out and done something. Recently, they just made a movie on one of my students, and she, he was saying thank you. And I was, you know, I, I put that in my, my thing. I got a, another guy that got an awards in his acting career, and got thank you. And then I had the opportunity to be invited to be involved in a, a new movie, and then so I get thank you, and I get to be interviewed like mm -hmm. yours. I, I, I showed you your type yes. already in there. Because <laughs> as you were coming up, I was typing it in quickly. <laughs> but I keep it current throughout the day mm -hmm. or at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so I have no problem listing every single day things that I, was, I had the opportunity to be grateful for. My mom's told me when I was four, 
when she was putting me to bed because I was born on Thanksgiving Day, she said, uh, make sure you count your blessings because those that are grateful for what they have, they get more to be grateful for, and it's true. It's beautiful. Can so, we touch a little bit on the deserve limit as well? Yeah, well, anytime you're living by your highest values, your self-worth and your deserve goes up. And anytime you're living by lower values, your self-worth and deserve levels go down. And that's simple. And that's when people said, I feel self-depreciated, it's because they're going after low-priority things. Mm. They're trying to be something they're not. They don't know themselves yet. I ask people by the thousands, how many of you want to be financially independent? Everybody puts their hand up. I said, how many of you are? All the hands go down. I said, you have a fantasy of being financially independent, and your idea of it is the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but you don't have the values to actually live that. Mm. So if you don't have the values of buying assets that appreciate value, and you keep buying consumables that appreciate value, mm -hmm. you're going to go backwards financially and then live in this beat-up energy inside, beating mm -hmm. yourself up, going, why am I not where I want to be? Because where you want to be isn't really you. Mm -hmm. It's a fantasy that you're holding on to. And the addiction of that fantasy is what's making you depressed about your finances. Mm. How can one move from that poverty mindset to you know, a, a, a growth financial mindset? Simply having a care enough about human beings to want to find the needs of human beings and solve them and then do it in a sustainable, equitable manner with equanimity. So you want to make sure that you create a sustainable relationship. If you're narcissistic and you're, you're thinking that what you think is important is more than the customer, you don't stay in business. If you're altruistic and you sacrifice your profits for them, you won't stay in business. But if you have equity, equity between you and them and have a sustainable, fair exchange, you have further business. So your job is to find out what inspires you and find out what is fulfills the needs of others and take the time to focus on that instead of focusing on your problems. Focus on how you can serve people. And that's what's deeply meaningful. And if you do, you put a fair price on it, you start building your, your wealth potential. Then you take a portion of the income and you put it in savings and put it in investments and start buying assets with it so it works for you, so you're not a slave to money working for it. It's a, you're a master of it and it starts working for you. I, I had a gentleman right now, he just sent me a thing. He started out saving $8 a day. No, no, $8 a month. And now he's up to $4,000 a month. And that's over a three-year period. He went from eight to 4,000 a month. And he says, I'm on track right now. I know I'm gonna be financially independent if I stay with it. I have an incremental progress of serving more people more efficiently and saving more and investing more. And, I, and, I, and I, in three years, he's gone from literally starting out at $8 a month to what he's doing, 4000 That's a ma massive transformation. If he continued at that rate in three years, that would be a massive jump. He could be probably a fifty dollars or $100,000 a month. He'd be financially independent. But he, he stacked up the benefits of being of service. He stacked up the benefits of having fair exchange. He stacked up the benefits of him growing wealth patiently and not living by immediate gratification in his mind. Because every decision you make is based on what you think will give you the greatest advantage over disadvantage at any moment. And if you believe that going and buying immediate gratifying goods that are consumables of depreciation value are more important than buying assets that go long-term into value, you're not gonna get wealthy. But if you have a higher value on those, asset builder, you're on your way. And until you do, it's not gonna happen. Do you think that it's possible for everyone to think that way and live that way? Is it possible for everyone to do it? Yes. Is it probable? No. Because most people have not been mentored or around people that show them how to do it. So they, they, they don't know how they can do it. They don't know they can do it. They're so used to fitting in instead of standing out. They don't value themselves enough to value the educational process. Uh, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Branson, Elon Musk uh, wrote a thing together talking about the people who educate themselves are the people that go forward. Mm -hmm. If they're not educating themselves, 
on what's possible. They'll live in what's probable. Why do you think we're here on this earth? What's, what's our existence? Well, that's a question that Plato addressed. You know, he said that there's a, a deeper level of love for the sake of love, and that was it. But love of, of life, love of what you do, love of who you're with, I think that we have the capacity to live a fulfilled life by doing something we love with the people we love on a planet that we love. So that sounds kind of idealistic, but it's true. It's I think beautiful. we can really do that. And so will everybody do that? Nope. Uh, are they capable of doing it? They have the capacity. Their probability is low because they're not associating, they're not studying, they're not doing what it takes to get there. Mm. If they got exposure, like we're doing right now, some people will make that, that step forward and move into a different category of thinking. Mm-hmm. And where, uh, if people wanted to learn more about your method, where can they find that? Well, the methods and principles and things mm-hmm. that I'm doing, simply go to drdmartini.com. And a website is an educational website. They could probably spend the rest of their life on it just learning. Yes, there's a and lot it's on there. It's there for them to learn. It's the yeah. information that's on there is enough to help people move from yeah. wherever they are to where they want I to go. Agree, yeah. And also with your podcast as well, people can tune into your podcast. We have podcasts. We have webinars. We have seminars. We have uh, radio, television, newspapers, magazines. Every possible vehicle of education on my website is accessible. And much of it is free and they can take advantage of it. We also have live seminars they can attend and workshops. And I mean, everything that has evolved in as far as education, I'm involved in. You were saying earlier that you've completed 275 workshops and seminars this year and you've got another 100 to go. Is that correct? Yeah. So close to 400 a year, which is incredible. Yeah, I mean, the most I've done is 426 presentations a year. This year is probably around 360, 370, 375. I'm not sure exactly. I have to count this is living proof of someone that actually really loves what they do because that's that would not be an easy task for you know for anyone in terms of the travel and the energy that you've got to exude every time you're out there, but that's incredible. So you know, I don't think about it. I when you're doing something you really love to do, you just do it. You don't that's think true. about it. I, Very true. There's nothing that I'd rather be doing than what I get to do every day. So I do it. I just can't think of imagine. I can't imagine doing something else. It's beautiful. People go, well, what do you do for a vacation? I say, my life's a vacation. I don't need a vacation. <laughs> That's true. And my, my mission for my podcast is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's all about really helping people believe that their potential is limitless because I genuinely believe we can construct whoever we want to be within ourselves. And I'd love for you to share with my audience what your definition of limitless potential is. Well, I, I don't know if it would be completely limitless. I don't, I, I'm not likely to become a Victoria's Secret model. <laughs> but, um, With that hair, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, I, I might. But, but I think that, um, I think within the path of what you value most, we really don't know what the limits are for human capacity. But if we pursue things that aren't deeply meaningful to us, that aren't truly inspiring to us, that are not really a calling for our lives, we will probably put limits on ourselves. So we do have the capacity to live a relatively unlimited life in a relative term, mm-hmm. uh, not an infinite universal level, but, but in a relative term. And I think that, that we, have, we have to give ourselves permission to do something extraordinary on planet Earth because that's the true nature of our called being is that. And to not uh, subordinate to the traditions, conventions, and the boxes that most people live their life in because they're afraid of being rejected. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm really, really, uh, I loved your response and and thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to today's conversation. At Deconstructing Success, we have so many more incredible conversations for you to download, listen to, and share. Check out the links in the podcast description so that you can continue to learn, apply, and evolve. We would love for you to support the show. And you can do this by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or leaving a comment on your favorite platform. You can also share this episode with someone that you know who can benefit from listening to today's show. If you wish to connect with me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. Just type in Tima Alhaj, send me a direct message, and let me know which episode you listen to. All of the links are in the podcast description. Your future success is waiting for you. Until next time, this is Tima.